0: Welcome to Midweek, a place where we dive deep into Scripture. So grab your Bible, a pen, and a notebook, and get ready to study God's Word. All right, we're going to go through John chapter 7, and we're going to cover verses 31 to 53. So if you want to turn there to John chapter 7, and, and by, just by way of introduction, uh, let, me, let me say this. I want to bring up a point because it'll be, it'll be referenced back at the very end of what we talk about tonight. Um, The night uh, that I gave my life to Christ. Can anybody remember the day you gave your life to Christ? Do you remember that whatsoever? I I know that I have even the cassette. That just dated me right there, okay? Because I got saved in 79. But I have the cassette of the message of the night that I became a Christian. I was 23. I didn't want to go to church. They tricked me into going to church. You know the story. My sister said, I'll give you a housewarming party because I had bought a house. I go, okay, free presents, so I'm going to go to church. And I had a really, really bad hangover. It was one of the worst hangovers of my life. I didn't grow up in church, and so, you know, you, you, you know the rest of the story probably thinking about. So, so I go to church, and, um, and they would go to Melody Land Christian Center in Anaheim. Anyone remember Melody Land? Okay, Melody Land. And um, that night... They had a preacher there by the name of David Wilkerson. Anyone remember David Wilkerson? That was one hard nut, I'll tell you right now. That guy would lay you out straight. And it needed a guy, I needed a guy like that to tell me straight. Because I'm a real black and white. Straight in your face type person. And that guy was in my face from the first second of that night. Now I'm sitting there and I have a bad hangover and I'm paying attention to him and I'll never forget his opening line was, and he, if you remember his voice, he goes, The whole world's going crazy. And he would talk like that, you know, but he said, The whole world's going crazy. And I remember it was, it was such a bad headache, I, that hangover. And I thought, What? And I, I go, You're right. And here's what was so uh, amazing about his statement. And about that night, August 12th, 1979, and I happened to be sitting there in that, in that room, or that, in that church, is because about a week before, as some of you know, I've told the story so many times, I was sitting on my bed at home and I was sitting there bored out of my mind and I remember thinking to myself, the thought passed through my head, I'm going crazy. I'm just going crazy. And then the thought came in and said, and I know my friends are going crazy. I'll never forget that. And so when I went there that night and he said, the whole world's going crazy, he caught my attention right away. And man, he laid, I think he must have talked about every sin imaginable that night and just laying it all out. And uh, that night he just, he just got into my head and he rattled me, man. And I gave my life to Christ because the message really got inside of me. Now, I say that to say this. In tonight's teaching, we're going to see certain soldiers who at the end of it, they're going supposed to arrest Jesus. They don't don't arrest him. They come back and they ask him, why didn't you arrest him? He says, their answer was to the priest uh, was, well, never did a man speak the way this man speaks. And so they were enthralled by what Jesus had stated. It got in him and rattled. And that's the same thing that happened to me that night. It was like, he said things that just made sense to me. He said things that night, David Wilkerson, that really got my attention and just got a hold of me. And here I am today, 42 plus years later, as a follower of Christ, because of that night, because of an intersection of what, the, what my, the boredom and the thoughts were point in my mind and what the Spirit of God was moving through him and it just connected. It was like, never did a man speak the way this man speaks. And it just grabbed me. And I'll never forget that night. And I'll never forget those moments You know, and I can't wait to see him in heaven because sadly, he died in an auto accident about eight, nine years ago, head-on collision in Texas, about like something like that. But yeah, so we're gonna see tonight that same thing take place in these these soldiers' hearts that are sent to get, to to arrest Jesus. Now, I'm gonna give you five things if you're taking notes in your notes. Number one is this, no one can reverse God's word. No one can reverse God's word if you're taking a note. Now, look at John chapter seven, verse 31 and 32. Now, watch this. But many of the crowd believed in him, and they were saying, when the Christ comes, he will not perform more signs than those which this man has, will he? The Pharisees heard the crowd muttering these things about him, and the chief priests and the Pharisees sent officers to seize him. Now, the Pharisees hear the crowd talking about Jesus Christ out loud. Now, that's interesting. Because if you move back, to, you know, we're not going to turn there, but in verse 13, you find that people were afraid to talk out loud about Jesus. But now you find that they're talking out loud about Jesus. So they send these officers to seize Jesus. Now, why do they send the officers to take Jesus? Because in their minds, it's time to kill him. It's time to do Jesus' sin. We, we just can't play with this guy anymore. But here is the problem. They send these soldiers to go get Jesus while the priests wait here. Just the soldiers go get him, bring him back. Is that prophetically how Jesus will be taken? And the answer is no. The answer is no. Because prophetically, how Jesus will be taken is how? One of his own is going to betray him. And one of his own is going to sell him out, same guy, for so much silver, right? And prophetically, we find that to be true. In Psalm 41.9, it says... um, uh, he, who, uh, he who ate my bread lifted up his heel against me. That's a prophetic statement about, about the one who would betray Jesus. We know Zechariah eleven twelve 12 says that he would be sold for silver. So the Bible, you cannot reverse God's word. If it says it's going to happen that way, guess what, guys? It's going to happen that way. Now... Let me show you some things that I think are so cool, and I hope you do too, when it comes to the prophetic nature of God's Word, because one of the evidences that this is the absolute Word of God is the prophetic statements that have come to pass from this great collection of 66 uh, documents here. Turn to Daniel chapter 9, Daniel 9 in your Old Testament. Always keep your marker here in John 7. But look at Daniel 9, and Daniel Daniel 9, Daniel period, is one of the great prophetic books. But chapter 9 is just an amazing set of statements uh, prophetically. You go back in time, and Daniel's writing this 2,600 years ago. Now watch verse 24, and I'll just stop at 26. Watch the prophetic nature of this to show that you cannot speed up when they're going to take Jesus and when they're going to crucify him. Can't speed it up. It's a prophetic statement here. It says, 70 weeks, verse 24, have been decreed for your people and your holy city to finish the transgression, to make an end of sin, to make atonement for iniquity, to bring in everlasting righteousness, to seal up vision and prophecy, and to anoint the most holy place. So you are to know and discern that from the issuing of a decree to restore and rebuild Jerusalem. Now, that happened prophetically in Nehemiah 2 verse 8 when Xerxes issues a decree for Nehemiah to go back and rebuild the wall to rebuild the city the temples already done so that's where that takes place prophetically so this is around 600 BC that prophetically is fulfilled in 445 BC watch the time frames here now until Messiah the prince there will be now watch the time frames From the moment the decree is given, the time frame is, there'll be seven weeks and 62 weeks, which is how many weeks? 62 plus seven is how many? Come on, math people. 69 weeks. These are weeks of years, by the way. It will be built again with plaza and moat, even in times of distress. Then after 62 weeks, the Messiah will be cut off. Now stop so you understand how it's written, because somebody's gonna say, see, it's only 62. No, go back to the previous statement. The previous statement is 7 and 62. So that's 69, right? So when he makes the next statement, after the 62 weeks, so it's after the seven, 62. It's still 69 weeks, but somebody might try to confuse you on that, but that's all it's saying there. The Messiah will be cut off, who's the Messiah, Jesus Christ, and have nothing. And the people of the prince who is to come will destroy the city and the sanctuary, and its end will come with a flood. Even to the end, there will be war, desolations are determined now here's one of the greatest prophecies of the old testament daniel says and daniel's got some great prophecies he says the moment the decree is given by artaxerxes to nehemiah to go rebuild the city the wall that's when the clock starts of what's called daniel's 70 weeks 490 years in the 70 weeks of years he says, from the moment the decree is given, there will be 69 weeks of years. At the end of the 69 weeks of years, Messiah will be cut off. Somebody did the math, guys. They did the math that from the moment the decree is given to the moment that Jesus rides in on that little colt on Palm Sunday, that last week of his life, it was, it's 173,000, 880 days to the day or 69 weeks of years. How in the world could Daniel have figured that one out? How could he have known that except by the Spirit of God? Now, turn to Luke chapter 19, which this might make sense or at least maybe more sense that, and here's kind of the way I lean on this Luke 19 statement based on what I've just told you. Now watch when Jesus rides into Jerusalem on the last week of his life, that Palm Sunday. Look at verse 41. Are you in, are you in Luke 19 yet? Say yeah. yeah. Okay, good. Now watch this. It says, when he, who's Jesus, approached Jerusalem, he saw the city and he wept over it, saying, if you had known in this day, even you the thing was made for peace, but now They have been hidden from your sight. What's he telling them? He's saying, had you known the day? Now, let me tell you the way I lean on this first. The way I lean is that Jesus is saying, had you just done the math, had you just counted, the prophecy was given to you, had you just calculated it all, you would have known that this is the day that I would come riding into Jerusalem. You would have known that. And so you see the prophetic timetable there that Jesus will die specifically at a certain time let me go back to my statement no one can reverse God's word correct they're going to go try to take him can they take him at the wrong time No. no they can't it's an impossibility for them to do that now Jesus by the time these soldiers go try to get him he is still six months away from dying on that cross it's the wrong time. Therefore, you cannot re- reverse God's word. Now, let's go back to John chapter 7. seven look at verse 33 and 34. Um, therefore, Jesus said, for a little while longer, I am with you. And then I go to him who uh, sent me. You will seek me and will not find me. And where I am, you cannot come. <clears throat> he says, I'll be with you a little while longer. But he says, where I am, going, where I am, you cannot come. Unless, remember, go back to John 3, Nicodemus, unless you're born again, right? Then you can go where, where he is. But here's something that I think is fascinating about the verse right here. In verse 34, look at verse 34. He says, you will seek me and will not find me and where I am, you will not come. Did he say where I am going or where I am? Where I am. That's interesting, huh? Here comes the I am statement again. This is something that Jesus keeps saying in John because John is the book of the seven signs, the seven I am, the I am statements. He's all these things. And now he says, where I am, you cannot come. The I am is what we call the Tetragrammaton. It means four letters. It's the Old Testament. It's the YHWH for Yahweh, self-existent one, okay? Now let me play it out like this. Here's how it works for you and I. I, I took a lot of effort, because I'm not an artist, but it took me a while to draw this, okay? <laughs> that's, a, that's about the extent of my drawing, okay? It's a line in the paper. That's all it is, okay? That's it, okay? C.S. Lewis gave, gives us a, it's so, it's so brilliant and just so simple. He says, you take a piece of paper, The paper is God. The line is time. Time exists in God. God exists outside of time. Therefore, time, past, present, and future, is in God. You follow me so far? He's the self-existent one. Now, why is that so important that he is the beginning and the middle and the end? Why is that a big deal to you and I? I'll give you one big reason why that's a big deal. Because in our life, think about our individual life. Does it ever feel like our life is a little bit chaotic? Yes. Like, oh God, what are you doing? Oh God, what's going to happen? Do you think God, who is God and time, past, present, future, exists in him? Do you ever think God is ever caught off guard by the chaos of our life? Do you think he's going, oh, I don't know what to do for Jim now? No, he's never caught off guard. In fact, because God is the paper and time is inside of him, we can always trust that God is always working on our behalf. Can we not? He's always doing those things. And so we don't have to panic. We don't have to worry and wonder where God is. God is the beginning. God is the middle. And God is the end. He's the self existent tetragrammatron, the I am, he's the four letters, guys, and so we never have to worry about those things, because he's right there at all times, amen to that one right there, wasn't well, that worth typing on already, no, I'm just joking, all right, okay, here we go, verse 35, watch this, now, <clears throat> Jesus makes a statement, watch what they say to him, the Jews then said to one another, where does this man intend to go, that he will not, we will not find him. He is not intending to go to the dispersion among the Greeks and teach the Greeks, is he? What is the statement that he said, you will seek me and will not find me, and where I am, you cannot come? Now think about that. Here's another evidence that the natural man does not understand the things of the Spirit. Jesus told them in verse um, verse 33, he said, I go to him who sent me. Where did he say he was going? To the Father, right? What was their idea? Oh, he's going to go talk to Greeks. Where do you get that from? I mean, they couldn't be more off on that except to say we know that the natural man does not understand the things of the Spirit. Amen? Once again, and you see this repeatedly in his interactions with these people. Now, point two in your notes, and that's this. Never assume someone is saved just because they are in church. Never assume it. Look at verse 37. Now, on the last day, the great day of the feast, Jesus stood and cried out, saying, if anyone is thirsty, let him come to me. Now, I'm going to get into that verse and the meaning of it in a second, but here's how I want to utilize this point here. Where is Jesus standing when he says this? In the temple. He cries out in the temple. Are there believers around there in the temple? Yeah, you better believe there's believers around there. But you never, ever um, assume someone is saved just because they're sitting in church. Let me, um, <clears throat> let me, this is the illustration that always pops in my head all the time. And, and Irma, I wish Tom was sitting with you because it's an illustration of his life. 28 years, is it? Has Tom been saved 28 years, 28 years? How long? Please get it right, you're his wife. No, I, it's okay if you don't. But he got saved 28 years, let's just say 28 years ago. The church is 30 years ago. I remember when I met him. I remember when I first met him. We were at Auburndale Intermediate School. That's where we met in Sunday mornings, and I, and, I, and I talked to him, and I said, Tom, I said, now you got to go to Bible study, and he said, okay. I thought he was a born-again Christian. He was not. He was not, but he said, okay, and he went to Bible study, even though he wasn't saved, and then later on, he became a Christian, but here's my point. I assumed, because Tom we're standing in Auburndale, we're holding services, that because he's in that facility, that he's, he's a Christian. How many know that just because, you know, <laughs> that's a old corny joke, I better not go there, but anyway. How many know just because you're, you're sitting in church doesn't mean you're a Christian? Let me sh- share with you what a preacher battles in his head when he's preaching, at the very end of every message. Satan says, everybody's saved here. That's that hits me so many times at the end of the message. Everybody's saved. Don't give an altar call. Don't give an altar call. I mean, it, it's so repetitive. It's guaranteed it's going to come at me. And I think to myself, yeah, I, don't think, I, need, I think they're all saved. But I go, no, I'm going to give an altar call no matter what. And somebody always gets saved. Somebody always gets saved. And so you never, ever assume that just because someone is in church that they're a born-again believer. Never assume that. Now, let me get to the verse again. In verse 37, it says on the last day of the feast, remember before Jesus' brothers went to the feast and Jesus came up later, remember that? This is the Feast of Booths, okay? This is right. Now, here's what would happen at the Feast of Booths. Every day for seven days, the priests would go get water in a goblet. They would get water out of the pool of Siloam, all right? Now, for those of you that have been to Israel, I know you three, I think, went with me. You went into the Hezekiah's Tunnel. Remember Hezekiah's Tunnel? And how many have ever been in Hezekiah's Tunnel before? You've been in there? You've been in there? Yeah. Yeah, I said you, so you don't have to double handshake. And <laughs> high five. No, I'm just joking. Okay. If you go to Israel with us and you're not claustrophobic, you go through Hezekiah's Tunnel. It's 1,777 feet long, carved through solid rock underground and when you're walking through it you have to wear headlamps and and wet shoes and it's it's solid rock and the water's about this deep and you're walking in water sometimes it is so narrow you're walking like this as you're walking through and it's like I said if you're claustrophobic you don't even want to do this because it'll drive you nuts so i've been i've been able to walk through it twice now in, in my life where it empties out where you come out at cuz you walk from outside the city, inside the city, to the pool of Siloam. It comes out at Siloam. That's where we came at it. Those priests would get the water from Siloam. They'd walk from there. They'd walk up to the temple at the Feast of Booths, and they'd pour the water out on the altar for seven days. This was done to remember that in the desert that God supplied water from the rock. Remember that story as they traveled? We know that Paul says in 1 Corinthians 10, that the rock that followed him was Jesus Christ. So there's all this symbolism that's that's happening here. Now, Jesus now stands up, not on the seventh day, stands on the last day, the eighth day. Because on the eighth day, they would not go get the water. That day, they wouldn't do it. Jesus now stands up on the eighth day, and he utters the words, if anyone is thirsty, let him come to me and drink. Whoa. Because now, what is he equating himself to? The rock that spewed forth the water in that desert as they were traveling. And now he's saying, I'm the water. I'm the one. I'm the one. And if you're thirsty, I can give you the water of life for your life. Now, I want you to notice three words that he specifically uses in this verse. Thirst, come, and drink. Thirst, come, and drink. He says if you're thirsty. This is not physical. This is spiritual, right? Right? He tells, now watch how John builds on this thing. He tells a Samaritan woman, remember Jesus tells her in John 4, he who drinks of this water shall thirst again. In other words, everything in this world, everything that we own, everything that we have, everything we desire, it will never quench our thirst, correct? It will always be, I need it again and again and again and again and again. It it will never quench our thirst. I mean, I'll tell you a, a, a dumb one in my head right now. So our home we live in, it's 23 years we've been living in there. When we bought it, we had to gut the whole thing. Just had to. It was just like, you had to gut this thing. And I like to tile. I'm a self-taught tiling guy. I learned from a video cassette from (laughs) Home Depot way back. And the first house I did it in, you don't want to see that job. But I got better and better. So by the time I got to this house, um, I tiled the whole house, but I I tiled the master bathroom. And I I did a pretty good job. Um, And then I think 11 years went by, and I said, okay, we need to redo this master bathroom. Tore it all out. I retiled it again. That was 12 years ago. You know what my problem is? I watch HGTV. (laughs) Anybody? Anybody know what I'm talking about? You look at that, and you go, I hate my bathroom. I hate it. Because look at the style now. And so I sit there, and I I think I've told uh, Olivia a couple times, I just feel like ripping it all apart. I just feel like starting over in this bathroom because it's out of style. But that's typical of us humans, right? We're never satisfied. It just, no matter what it is, it's okay for a while, but there's no long-term satisfaction. Jesus said, who's ever thirsty, which is all of humanity, come and drink from him. And then he says, he says thirst, then he says Come. That's a movement statement. That's a faith statement. If you're thirsty, come, come to me. In other words, turn your back on the world, put your trust in me, watch what happens. And then he says, thirst, come and drink. That's right. Engage, partake, abide, t- make Christ yours. These are big statements that he's making right there. Now, now the, the question at the end of that, I think I jumped myself, no. The result is this, point three. Point three notes. Rivers of life should flow from us. So if we do these things, rivers of life should flow from us. It's a natural conclusion to it. Look at 38 and 39. It says this, He who believes in me, as the scripture said, from his innermost being will flow rivers of living water. But this he spoke of the Spirit, the Holy Spirit, whom those who believed in him were to receive. For the Spirit was not yet given, because Jesus was not yet glorified. Now, i got four, four things I want to say about this because these are, these are great verses. Okay, here's the first, first thing I want to tell you. <clears throat> Think of the progression we've been studying. In John chapter 3, unless one is born of water. That's not, that's not it's, it's spiritual. Okay, he's talking spiritual to Nicodemus. That's John 3, okay. And then in John and 4, he tells a Samaritan woman it becomes a well of water springing up to eternal life. Remember that? Notice the, the consistency of what he's saying. And then now in John 7, he says, this water for you is going to flow from your belly, you know, from the believer of the belly out to others. So if you put the progression together, you realize the water, the water, I'm born again, then it springs up to eternal life. So it's, that's just the source right here. And that source comes down in John 7. It flows from me to others. In other words, I'm blessed to be a blessing. Amen. That's exactly what he's telling us to be. We're blessed to be a blessing. And if we're not doing that, we're missing out on one of the greatest callings of our life. Now, the second thing I want to say is this. The water here that he says is going to flow from us is the the Holy Spirit, and it's the Holy Spirit's power in our life. It's the baptism and power of our life of Acts chapter 1. And you see where these disciples, once they were baptized in power, man, they changed the whole world. They gave them the boldness to go out there. And how many Christians just need some boldness to stand up for what they believe and not shrink back from whatever anybody says? No, we need the boldness. We still need the baptism and power as they did back then. The third thing I want to say is this. Look back at verse 38. Did he say river or reverse? It's very important, huh? Reverse, not reverse. Rivers, in other words, you're not the Santa Ana River, you're Niagara Falls. You ever been in Niagara Falls? You ever seen the Santa Ana River? There's no comparison. Right? Right? Last week, I was um, in mammoth on vacation, so I went to Rainbow Falls. Anyone been to Rainbow Falls? Walk down to it. Rainbow Falls. Yeah. It's beautiful. It's a fall. It's not fall. It's, it's a fall. It's, it's powerful. It's beautiful. But I've been to Niagara Falls. And Rainbow Falls, as magnificent as it is, is like a squirt gun compared to Niagara Falls. And all the volume water that's flowing from Niagara Falls. See, here's the thing. <clears throat> The rivers that should flow from us, the power of God that should be flowing from us, it, it, it should be flowing out to others, just flowing. Here's the picture, and I, and I love this picture. Um, in Israel, uh, um, Sea a Galilee, beautiful? Yes. Jerry, beautiful? Yes. Beautiful, right? Dead Sea, beautiful? No. no. There's a difference between the two, okay? The Dead Sea, water flows in, but guess what doesn't flow out? Water doesn't flow out. It's the Dead Sea. The Sea of Galilee, where there's life and cities around it, water flows in and water flows out. That's the difference between the two seas, and they're just, they're big lakes is what they are. That's the difference between the two, and I think it's one of the greatest pictures for us in our lives. Which one are we? Does water just flow in, and we don't? We're not giving anything out. Nothing's going to flow from us. Or does water flow in and water flows out? And by the way, you really want to get more from God when you read the scriptures? Give out what you're learning fast. The more you give it out, the more you're going to learn, the more you're going to get back. That's a true, true statement right there. So <clears throat> the fourth thing I want to say in your Isaiah 58, 11, that's just a reference to what Jesus referenced in verse 38. So we don't need to turn that. The fourth thing is this. <clears throat> Look at verse 38. Verse 38. Where does the where do the rivers flow from? From where? Innermost being. Any of your Bibles say your belly? Yeah? Some of your Bibles probably say belly. Heart? You shouldn't let me write that Bible. No, I'm just joking. It flows from your innermost. Let's, let's take it from because a lot of that thing the King James says your belly. Flows from in other words, it's coming from right here. You know why I like that? Because If you look at Philippians chapter 3 and verse 19, you find that Paul writes that some people, their God is their belly, is their stomach. In other words, whatever they crave. In other words, it's all about what they want and all about what they can take in. And I like the contrast to this where it says from us, We've switched it and we're not walking according to our cravings and what we can take in. Now we're walking and it's what's flowing, the place where we crave and we're self-centered. Now it's a place where everything should be flowing from us. It's just a different way to approach life because the spirit of God flows out of us. Amen to that one? Now, fourth thing your notes, and that's this. Talk is cheap. Talk is cheap. This is a quick point, okay? Talk is cheap. Look at 40 to 42. Some of the people... Therefore when they heard these words were saying this certainly is the prophet notice the prophet not a prophet but the prophet of Deuteronomy 18:15 the prophet that Moses spoke about verse 41 others were saying <clears throat> this is the Christ still others were saying surely the Christ is not going to come from Galilee is he verse 42 has not the scripture said that the Christ comes from the descendants of David and from Bethlehem The village where David was, a lot of confusion going on, right? Now, the first people said that um, this is the prophet. In other words, this is the Messiah. This is the guy. He's the Christ. But notice, and you're going to find it at the end of this too, they're just saying it. They're not following. They're not receiving. They're just saying it. Talk is cheap. They're not drinking of him. They're not coming to him. Talk is cheap. They're just saying it. Now, verse 43. So a division occurred in the crowd because of him. Notice Jesus causes division everywhere he goes. It's awesome. Some of them wanted to seize him, but no one laid hands on him. So now we find here comes division. They want to seize him. They want to take him. They want to kill him. What's strange is this. They know Old Testament prophecy, like we read before, that he's going to come from Bethlehem and still they reject him. They know the scriptures and still they reject. But they know it. Now, point five. Here's, Here's my favorite point tonight. It goes back to what I started with. The officers sent to arrest Jesus were arrested by his words. The officers sent to arrest Jesus were arrested by his words. Look at 45 and 46. The officers then came to the chief priests and Pharisees and they said to him, why did you not bring him? The officers answered, and they say the statement that I told you earlier, never has a man spoken the way this man speaks, right? It's not miracles that change people's lives. It's the word of God that grabs people's lives. Never forget that. It's the word of God that grabs our lives. That's why you, hear these stat- you read these statements in the Bible, like in Romans 1. He says, I'm not ashamed of the gospel. It's the power of God for salvation. See, when you preach this stuff, when you share this stuff, this is the power of God that you're sharing. Jesus told us in John 6, the words that he speaks are spirit and their life. they have power to them. We find in Hebrews the writer whoever that person is says the Word of God is living and active and sharper than any two-edged sword and able to pierce to the division of soul and spirit of both joints and marrow and able to judge the thoughts and the intentions of the heart. We know Isaiah said in Isaiah 55:11 he said, "My word will not go forth and it does not return void. It's going to do something. This word of God is powerful. And what happens is, once it gets in a person, it begins to rattle around, does it not? And if you don't believe that, just go back and read Acts, read about Paul. Paul was the guy who was standing there when they're stoning Stephen, remember? And Paul was the priest, and he's standing there, and they're laying the coats at Paul's feet as they're stoning Stephen. He was the spearhead of killing Stephen, the first martyr of the Christian church. But guess what Paul heard that day? He heard Stephen's message, did he not? He heard the whole thing, and you have to believe that once he stood there and heard the whole thing, as much as he hated Jesus and hated Christianity and hated it all, and his job was to kill Christians, it starts rattling in his head, does it not? And it rattles, and it rattles, and it rattles, and it rattles, because you can't get away from it. They go to arrest Jesus, but Jesus' words arrest them. Never did a man speak the way this man speaks. Isn't it amazing how that power, how it just turns around, the word of God turns things around? At one point, it's going to arrest people. Now, look at verse 47. I love these next verses. Now, the Pharisees then answered, because these, remember, look at me, look at me. They said, where is he? Why didn't you bring him back? Well, never did a man speak the way this man speaks. That really sets him off, okay? Now, watch this. The Pharisees Then answer them, you have not also been led astray, have you? Oh, that's a great line. Verse 48, they add, no one of the rulers or Pharisees has believed in him, has he? Now think about what they're saying. They're saying, you've been led astray. Jesus is a heretic. What's their evidence? They told you their evidence there. What's their evidence? Because we say so. Because we just agree that he is. In other words, they have no evidence. They have nothing on Jesus. But just because we say it, and that makes it what it is. Uh Uh-uh. Incorrect. Incorrect. Now, verse 49. Watch this. Watch what the priests say. But this crowd, which does not know the law, is accursed. Accursed. Okay, look up at me, because this is a big statement. This is really huge because this really relates to history, empires, United States right now, the whole shot. He says, they said yeah, we don't believe this accursed crowd that's beginning to believe in him. They're not very smart. We're the smart ones. That's what they're saying. That's what he's saying right there. Notice verse 48. Notice the, the distinction he makes. No one of the rulers of the Pharisees that believed him. Uh, us, we haven't believed in him. Verse 49, but this crowd, you notice the division? Do you notice the two different worlds he's talking in right there? Okay, good. It's a very, very important thing to grasp right there. He says, we're the smart ones, they're the dumb ones. They're dumb, they believe in him, they're the dumb ones. We're the smart ones, we don't believe in him. That's what they're saying right there. Okay. Let me give you some thoughts that you may not agree with me on, and I'm fine with that. But I think it's so true, and I think it relates, and I think it's where we're at again. And, it's, and just because it's happening in our lifetime, it doesn't mean it ha- it's happened before. Satan has no new plans. Amen? He does the same thing all the time. <laughs> but the first thing you find in these two verses is that un- uneducated believers can be wiser than educated Unbelievers. Am I right? That's a fact. That's a fact. And I'm not against education, except you better watch out for education because they try to destroy God in, in, in young people these days. Now, when he says the crowd, you need to understand what he's really saying. These are what is called the amhaaretz. The Arets. What the crowd is, the Aretz they are the 85% of the people in Israel at that time, they're that the common folk. They're just the commoners. Because 15% of the nation were the elites. And so when he says, this crowd this amha aretz, that's really what he's saying. This crowd here, they know nothing. They're the common folks. Don't even listen to them. Don't even pay attention. So, so what they believe in. they don't know any better. Now, let me tell you one of the ways that works in our society. Let me take you back to a message or something I shared in a message last year. A couple of times now, I've shared certain books with you. Do you remember? Okay. One of the books I shared was the Abigail Schreier book, um, <clears throat> um, uh, Irreversible Damage. In that book, this woman's not a Christian, not a Christian at all. Uh-uh. In fact, she wouldn't even believe with some things. But she writes this book that I told you, if you, have, if you have daughters or granddaughters, you better buy this book and read it because she's exposing the fad of transgenderism. And she calls it a fad. And she's right. It is a fad. It's just the next fad of Satan. And it's just pushing and pushing. Because in that book, it tells you the ways they're going after, especially the young girls. If they're going after through school, they're going after them through peer groups, and they're going after them through online gurus. That's why you can't let your little kids get online because there's gurus out there that are grooming them, and you've got to be careful. But you, come, you get the book, and you read it. You, you read it because she's, she's smart. And, and I'll tell you, you say, well, she's, a, she's, a, she's against all that. She's not even against transgenderism, which I am against, obviously, because I believe this is what you're born. This is how God made you, period. Amen. So. But she's not even against that. So people can say, well, she's just leaning. No, she's not. She's pointing out that it's a fad. It's a fad. Here's, in that book, she shows you emails that she's accumulated from school boards. Not all school boards, but from some school boards. I remember reading, I remember one said this. It said about transgenderism and teaching these kids from age five. Hmm. It says, we need to lead the parents on this. Can you imagine that they need to lead us like we don't know any better? Like we don't know how to lead our own kids? What's really, what you're really saying is the, they the elitists think they just know better than us and we don't know how to raise our own families and they're going to show us the way. No, they're not. You can have all kinds of letters after your name and education, but if you're an unbeliever, you can be the most unwise person around the most immoral person around. Now, um, you've heard me mention the name Thomas Sowell. How many know who Thomas Sowell is? Yeah. Man, if you want to know proper economics and get it right, you better listen to Thomas Sowell versus all the cliches of the culture, man. Because oh, our politicians just throw the worst cliches at us and they're just cliches. Listen to Thomas Sowell. Go to Thomas Sowell YouTube. He goes by evidence, which is what politicians and journalists do not do anymore. They just go by cliches and who's the loudest and how many people can yell. And that's all that happens now. But he goes by evidence. And one of his books, one of his, and by the way, he's in his early 90s. We're not going to have him a lot longer. Thank God we have all these YouTube videos of him. And so he's a brilliant, brilliant man. And he's highly, highly educated. So you would consider him elitist. But he says things like, in the book he says this. He says, the intellectual elitists, they think they're smarter than all of us. And they think they need to lead us. And he says, but they're wrong. They're completely wrong. <laughs> now, <clears throat> um, one of the great things, that, and by the way, uh, yeah, let me go. Remember on, uh, two days ago on Sunday, I took you to Romans chapter one. Remember that? Say, please say you remember it, okay? Where I showed you that there's this The foundation is we need to make God the foundation of our kids' lives. And this is true for everybody, not just kids. But many people make themselves God. True? So the foundation shifts. It's a bad shift. And I started you at a certain verse in Romans 1. If I backed up one or two verses from where I began, because I could have, there's a verse in there in the context of when we reject God and make ourselves God, it says, professing to be wise, they became fools. It's true, huh? When we reject God and make ourselves God and think we know better, and we know better than everybody else, and we need to lead the parents, we need to to do this, we become fools. We become fools. And it doesn't matter how much education we have behind us, we've just become fools. Now let me finish. Let me finish. Verse 50. Nicodemus, the one who came to him, before being one of them said to them. Now remember, there's this battle going on in the priest room right there. They want to get Jesus. They want to kill him. He's put down the crowd and everything. But here's one, Nicodemus, he stands up and and he says, in verse 51, our law does not judge a man unless it first hears from him and knows what he is doing, does it? Verse 52, they answered him, his own ranks, You are not also from Galilee, are you? Search and see that no prophet arises out of Galilee. What's going on? One of their own of the rulers is starting to believe in Jesus. Nicodemus is starting to shift. Ah, Nicodemus is standing up to his fellow Pharisees and says, you know, he has to have his day in court. You know that. And they're mad at him. And they tell him this. They say, when he says, our law does not judge a man first unless he's in he court case. And they say, you are not also a Galilean, are you? And then they tell him, search and see that no prophet arises out of Galilee. Question. When they say no prophet arises out of Galilee, Galilee, is that true or false? It's false because Jonah and Nahum both came out of the Galilee area. Either they're lying or they're just so blinded by their hate that they make a statement like that. Hmm. Now, let me close with this progression and contrast. Verse 53, which is really a part of the next. Next week, when we go over the, adultus, the adulterous woman, which is one of the greatest stories in here recorded, it says, everyone went to his home. A little statement now. Huh? <clears throat> Feast is over, everyone goes, goes back home. Think about that. He says, thirsty, come, drink. Did they? Thirsty, come and drink. Did they? Everybody went home. After all that, everybody goes home. Nobody partakes. Nobody was faith. Everybody goes home. Okay, except one guy, Nicodemus. Let's watch Nicodemus' progression, okay? 18 months before this moment, Nicodemus goes to Jesus in John chapter three by night. Remember that? He's just curious. He's got questions. In John seven now, we find him speaking up in his own peer group saying, wait a minute, you can't just judge him like that. Huh. And then, when we flash forward to John 19 at the cross of Christ, we find Nicodemus with Joseph of Arimathea taking Jesus off the cross. You see the progression of his life? You see how he's coming? This is the slow movement to salvation in, in our lives. In John 3, he comes in the darkness at night, but really, he's in darkness spiritually, is he not? In John 7, right now, when he finally stands up for Jesus, now you find him in the twilight of the beginnings of his salvation. He's kind of coming into faith right now. And then in in John 19 at the cross, he comes to full faith in Jesus because he goes to the cross with Joseph and says, no, I I believe in him now. I get it. I get it. I understand it. You see? And here's my my last statement. Many went home that night in this chapter. Many went home and they were not arrested at all by the words of Jesus. It did not grab them. But Nicodemus in this interaction, takes another step towards faith in Jesus Christ. See, the word of God was little by little arresting the heart of Nicodemus until it captured him that day at the crucifixion, and he became a follower of Jesus Christ. Amen? Amen. Let's pray. We'll end there. Lord, thank you, first off, that you arrested our hearts. Because one time we were Nicodemus, we came, we were in darkness. And we started to turn, came into the twilight of faith. And then one day, full faith, like him at the cross. Thank you for saving us. Thank you, Lord. Thank you, Lord, that through your word and faith in you, we can have wisdom. We can understand who true right and wrong is. We can have the wisdom for daily decisions. Thank you, Jesus, you've revealed yourself to us, Lord. Thank you, God. In Jesus' name, amen. If you need prayer or dedicated your life to Christ, please reach out to us on our social media, on Facebook and Instagram at Norco, or email us at hello at NBCC.com. Thank you for listening. Don't forget to share and subscribe to this podcast.